Hi friends, welcome to Moment with Miranda this week. This is a time when we get to come together and we dig a little deeper into the Word of God to find out who He is so that we can know who we are. And the more we know Him, the more we know that whatever is born out of Him overcomes the world. And that's you and that's me. So if you want to know more of him today and of yourself, then stick around for this moment, the for Christ or the of Christ life. You are very welcome into the house of the delighted father. The door is always open for you. He's waiting. He's got a robe. He's got a ring. He's got a pair of shoes. And I'm pretty sure that the fatted calf is ready as well. He's just waiting for us to come in. It's in the house of the delighted father where you and I get to believe the words that he says about us. And by faith in his goodness, we speak those same words over our lives and through the power of the Holy Spirit. We see our lives transformed into the image of Jesus from glory to glory, and it's an amazing work that he's doing in us. So welcome to Moment with Miranda today. For many years, I've heard the little poem by a man, C.T. Studd, that says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And what great and thought-provoking words these are. They were written by this man, Studs, who was a missionary to China, to Africa, and to India. And after living a life for himself, even after accepting Jesus Christ, he came to the realization one day asking, what am I doing? Am I doing anything of eternal value? Am I having an impact on anyone's life? And so he was spurred on by conviction of the Holy Spirit to really begin to do something for God. And he made connections with this man called Hudson Taylor, who founded the China Inland Mission. And through Taylor, he went to China and then ended up traveling to various parts throughout the world, being a missionary, really living a life for Christ. And I was thinking about this little poem, and it really has always nudged me. It sounds, you know, like something that you would knit on a pillow, cross-stitch on a pillow maybe, but it goes so much deeper. And in true Miranda fashion, I was like, am I doing enough? Have I worked hard enough for God? Is there more that I could be doing? And of course, like the resounding answer was, no, you're not doing enough. And definitely there's something more that you can do. And that kind of a thought process has always led me personally to a life of striving. Um, I was striving to make sure that I was doing enough for Christ to be pleasing to God. For me, I lived a life striving to prove that I could do for Christ what no one else was willing to do, and I would lay it all on the line, whatever it took. And, you know, that sounds really, really noble. And when it's born of the right desire, it is. It's actually a very good place. And it's the answer to the invitation that Jesus gives us to deny ourselves, to take up the cross and to follow him. But when that is born of yourself or when it's born of the flesh or when it's born out of ignorance, it can go terribly, terribly wrong. And even our reasonable 
service to God and the things that we do in his name can become this place where we try to gain our identity and we try to gain our importance and we get caught up living a life for God. The I have to be or life instead of living the life of God, the I am so I can kind of life. One of the most well-known exchanges that we read about in the Bible is between Jesus and a man called Nicodemus. And it's found in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and he says, Rabbi, he says, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God and no one could do the things that you do except that God is with him. And Jesus said, yes, you're right. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And in Christian circles, this phrase is very well known. You know, we have we say we've been born again or we got saved. And we kind of know what one another's talking about when we use that terminology. But I wonder if we really understand what we're talking about, what has actually just happened in our lives. Because when Jesus said, you must be born again, what he was literally saying is you must be born from above. Of course, that threw Nicodemus off. He's like, huh? You know, how can I go back into the womb? I'm old. I'm a large man. That's not a possibility for this to happen. And again, Jesus says, unless you are born from above, of water and of the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives the key. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, friends, this really gets me excited because of this little word here. Of. And we see it many times in the Bible, but I want to focus on this phrase, born of the Spirit or born of God. This word of is the Greek word ek, ek. And why is this important? What's the big deal about such a little word? And this word is not so simple because it has huge implications for us. It actually means denoting origin or the point from which an action or emotion proceeds. So of this word eek means out of or originating from. So this means that I have a starting place and everything from that point of origin, if I will recognize where it came from, has the power to direct my way of life and the power to bring about its intended purpose. Let's recognize for a minute here who it was that Jesus was talking to. He was talking to this man who was a Pharisee, Nicodemus knew the law. He taught the law. He was probably living it the best way that he knew how to live it. And he must have been sincere because here he comes seeking out Jesus in the middle of the night. Nicodemus would have known the sacrificial system. He would have known the traditions. I think he would have said that he was a man that lived for God. And here Jesus is telling him, but there's another way. It's the way of living the life of God. 
the life that begins in him and then proceeds out from him. And this is the gospel. This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means to be saved. I am now living the life of God. It's not simply I get to feel better about myself so I don't feel guilty anymore and I get to walk around life with my head up a little bit. It's not simply I get to go to heaven one day and rejoice. It's actually now a whole new life. It means the very place from where I start has begun anew and begun afresh. It's an entirely new father, a new DNA, a new system of believing, a new way of life, and that's his way. And it's not just a life for God, but it's actually the life of God. And we can read this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, where Peter reminds the church, he says, You have been born again, not of corruptible seed. Here's that word of, not out of corruptible seed, but out of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The flowers wither, and the grass fades away, but the word of God endures forever. And this word, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. In the book of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John writes, He came, speaking of Jesus, to his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as did receive him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even those who believe on his name, which are born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God, born out of God. Here it is, friends. Here it is again. It's the gospel. Those who believe are born from God and his incorruptible and ever enduring word of truth and word of power. Flesh and blood is going to fail us. We are going to come short. Our past will try to define us and influence our future. And if we fixate, any of us, if we fixate on what was, we will find find ourselves trapped in what is. So what do I mean by that? That means that either I'm going to be stuck and wallow in what happened or who did this or who did that or what I did or didn't do and make excuses as to why I can't do anything for Christ or I'll be the kind of person that continually pushes myself to do better for Christ, to work harder for Christ, to be more for Christ, just this continual striving kind of life. And both of these kinds of lives keep us trapped because I'm so busy trying to live for Christ that I miss that that wasn't his intention or the singular goal. His intention and his desire was to teach me to live of Christ. It's entirely a different mindset in an entirely different way. The of Christ life is to live a life that finds its source and that finds its point of origin from the very seed of God, 
a seed that is perfect, a seed that is incorruptible. It's this place of a secure identity and purpose. It's this place where faith just thrives and it just comes alive. It's this place where there's this life that is literally a powerhouse of purpose and of love and of peace. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, John writes, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Now, friends, this isn't faith in ourselves. It's the, not the amount of faith that I have, but it's our faith in him, our mutual faith, the faith of him. Paul says, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I grew up in church and I traveled teaching the word of God and yet I was still struggling and I was still in this place of striving. I was never at peace in my soul because I was working so hard to live for God, to do for God and it was never enough. And I always saw God as being displeased and I saw God as being disappointed and I only saw my failures. And then when I did succeed, I kind of had the audacity to believe that it was all because I had followed right, or I had obeyed right, or I had sacrificed right. And I gave up all for Christ and I went the extra mile. I didn't know that God was not as interested in my life for him as he was interested in my life of him. The life that is only born, not from my own work, not from my flesh, not from my will, but from his will, his desire, his word, that desire that I would know him. My life in Christ is so intentional. It was God's desire to know me. And I don't know about you, my friends, but when I think about this life right here, this this breathing life is a life that God had such an, a desire for me to have that he gave of himself for me. That creates such faith in my heart. And it just makes me get, want to go, come on, what is it now that Christ and I can do? together. It was a life. It's a life that's born of the seed of the Spirit of God. And friends, this is not a weird thought. This is not kind of a crazy thing. This is amazing to me. And when you and I receive Christ, we're not just receiving some dude that came and walked around 2,000 years ago, said he was the way, died on the cross, resurrected again, and we believe that he's coming back to take us away out of here. You know, kind of sounds weird. It kind of sounds crazy. We're not just, we're not receiving some man. We are receiving the life of God. We are receiving life of God for today. And it's a whole new life that gives me peace and it gives me confidence and it empowers the very seat of my doing. It empowers my heart of believing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. We become born of God when we are reconciled to God. 
This reconciliation means that we have been made right, that there was a discrepancy, that there was a debt, that, you know what, my checkbook here does not reconcile right. There's something that's coming up short. There's something that's wrong here. Reconciliation can't happen until somebody sees that they are wrong. And I was wrong. I couldn't measure up, no matter how hard that I strived or no matter what I did, no matter how much studying I did or persevering I did. It doesn't matter how good that we think that we are. It doesn't matter how many things that I can say. This gets me. It doesn't matter how many things that I can say that I have done for Christ. Because friends, there's going to be many who say, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all of these things for you God and yet Jesus is going to say depart from me because I never knew you you were never born of me you were never bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh you never came out from me friends whoa you know that's a really really sobering thought and we can see that what is born of the flesh is flesh and what is born of the spirit is spirit. And it's out of the seed of God that I find my true life. Otherwise, the things that I do are nothing. It's not what I do for him. It's I am of him. And that's a whole nother ball game, friends. See, the Pharisees, they came to Jesus and they said, Abraham is our father. We have never been in bondage. And Jesus said, if Abraham was your father, then you would do what Abraham did. You would do the works of Abraham. So what were the works of Abraham? The work of Abraham was belief. It was faith. That was the work of Abraham. In other words, I'm going to know what spirit you're of because your life is going to be evidence of it. What comes out of you is going to actually tell me where you from, you're from. Friends, what comes up out of me is going to tell you where I'm from. We keep one another humble. We keep one another in check. We should be willing to say to one another, hey, is that does that line up with your life of Christ? Does that line up with who your daddy is? Are you portraying the image of Christ? And I think that we should be able to say this to one another. And Jesus really ticked the Pharisees off whenever he said, you're of your father, the devil. I mean, he certainly made them mad with that one. And friends, I want you to please understand my intentions that I'm not saying that if we're doing something for Christ, then we're wrong. But what I am encouraging us today to do is to check our believing who is the father of this thought or this action? Where is it taking me? It, it's from the heart that man believes. And it's with the mouth 
that confession is made unto salvation. And the amazing thing is, is that God gives us the new heart that's able to believe. And it's not because we do it ourselves. It's not because we can make it on our own. The promise of the new covenant was that God will put his law in our inward parts and he will put, he will write it on our hearts that he would be our God and that we would be his people. And this verse holds a beautiful treasure out of the Hebrew language because when it says that he will put his law in our inward parts, the inward parts is the center of who we are. It's the very core of our believing. And the tense of this word, will put, is this Hebrew tense, the perfect tense, which means that he did it that it's accomplished. He put his ways into our inner man whenever we're born of him, whenever we come out from him. And then it says that he will write his laws on our hearts. The difference with this is the tense is different because it's the imperfect tense, which means that it is a continual process that is happening throughout our lives. Friends, he is still writing upon our hearts belief. He is still writing upon our hearts peace. He is writing upon our hearts faith. He is writing upon our hearts love. He knows how to keep fathering those that are born of him. And that seed that is born of him will produce works that are for him. So friends, in this moment today, only one life will soon be passed. And that which is born of Christ will last. Those that are born of the Spirit and the works will be produced by the Spirit of God. You are the sons and the daughters of God if you have received the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. We owed a debt. We were wrong. We were separated. But now Christ has made peace for us with God through his death on the cross. And our believing in that death and and resurrection causes us to be born again, born of God, born from above so that we can now live from above. And if we live the of Christ life, then there is no way, friends, that we will miss the for Christ life. Stay tuned in for more Moment with Miranda. Welcome back to Moment with Miranda, friends. In this week's Moment, we are asking the question, are we living the for Christ life or the of Christ life? Where we place our focus or our starting point is going to determine where our power comes from. Will it be a power that's born from and maintained by our own efforts? Or will it be a life that's born from Christ and maintained by the power of his Holy Spirit? I remember a conversation that I had with a dear sister in the Lord several years ago. And she said something that really made an impact on my heart. She said, I have learned that 
whatever I've started in the flesh will have to be maintained by my flesh. But whatever is birthed by the Spirit will continually be given life by the Spirit. And I would venture to say that she probably does not remember the conversation that we had together and certainly not those words. But for me, they went deep into my heart and they really stuck. And many times during the ensuing years that followed, I recalled them, especially when I found myself in places of extreme frustration from depending on myself to continue what I had started. I would ask, Miranda, was this born of the flesh? Is that why you're struggling so hard to maintain and continue it? And I have my answer now. Years out of that trap and with the benefit of hindsight, which as they say is always 2020, I can see that what I participated in was a work of the flesh even though it was labeled with God's name. And I can see now that when I couldn't, quote, perform what was expected, or if I had what I perceived as a lack of faith or a failure to believe, I can see that I would get frustrated. And then I would internalize that frustration. And that internal struggle would do one of two things for me. One, it would push me to more performance. It would really push me to strive even harder to continue to press, or it would push me to self-punishment and to a form of retribution. The work of the flesh that I found myself participating in was not working in my life what it promised, but rather it was working death. You know, sin will promise life. It promises good things. But whenever lust is conceived in the heart and brings forth sin, what that does is bring forth death. And the liberty that I was promised in doing these things actually worked in me a bondage and it worked in me death. And I began to self-harm. I withheld things that I enjoyed in my life everything. I I didn't even realize it, but I made everything a strict rule and there was no freedom and grace in my life. I exercised because of a self-imposed rule. It was necessary that I do that. I ate with strict self-imposed rules. There were certain things that I was allowed to have, foods that I deemed as good or bad, and I would only allow myself certain things. At times, my frustration became physical acts of harm to my own body, not just nutritionally or not just physically in over-exercising, but also to the degree of hitting myself. And I would do that for some sense of a release from the frustration that I was feeling, all because I couldn't do what was expected of me by others and ultimately by myself. In essence, the baby that came from my flesh, what was given birth to, had all of the hallmarks of a work of the flesh. It looked like selfishness. It looked like self-hatred. It looked like strife. It looked like envy. 
it looked like fear. So, so very much fear. And I suffered with it to the point of it taking its toll on my physical body and also on my soul. So why do I use this very personal example from my own life? I use it because it was all under the guise of being, quote, for Christ. It was a life for Christ. God's name was put on selfish actions. And how often we do this, friends, when we don't know who we are. We can take on noble deeds that are good and that are self-effacing, self-denying. But if we are doing them for a sense of personal satisfaction or belonging or because we have to out of duty, or if we're doing them because we're afraid of rejection by God, or we're afraid of not getting from God what we think that we should have, or if we do them to get closer to God, we are working for the benefit of a false identity. We're working to satisfy ourselves in our own needs, rather than truly living a life of good works, because they're born of Christ. I cannot help but think of a myriad of examples that are filling the pages of scripture, of those who withheld the true life of God from people and others because they lived selfishly and for their own gain, from the Pharisees to the heathen, people were often looked at more as a personal commodity rather than someone to be freed to live into their true identity as a son or a daughter of God. And those who did not live in their own true identity could never see it in other people. An example that comes to my mind right from the start is the men that lost their source of income from the woman who had the spirit of divination that Paul cast out of her. When they saw that they were losing their livelihood with her, they had Paul and Silas thrown in jail and imprisoned for this woman finding her freedom. You see, these were people that did not know their own true identity, so they used others to bolster their own, to fill their pockets with money, to produce something for themselves. They couldn't allow people freedom because they themselves were not free. This is just a simple example of heathen people that did this. But I also think of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day that are quick on my mind as well. They were the ones who claimed to know God, to work for God, and yet they are the same ones who didn't really know him or know his ways. They didn't recognize him when they came face to face with them. As I shared with you previously, Jesus said to these very people, he said, you are of your father, Satan. When they failed to recognize who he was all the while, while saying they knew God. And in Matthew 23, if you read down through that chapter, Jesus just really, he he calls these religious spokesmen on the carpet for their actions. They are claiming to speak for God. They are claiming of living for God, but they are not living the life of God. Jesus said the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in the seat of Moses. In other words, they give forth the law as it was given to them. And Jesus said, all that they bid you to do, or they bid you to observe, observe and do. 
but don't do after their works for they say, but don't do. In other words, he's telling that them to be people who not only say, but they also do the things that they say to do. The Pharisees instead, they put heavy burdens on others that they weren't willing themselves to carry. They did works to be seen of men. They did works to have places of honor and to have praise in the marketplaces. They loved the identity of rabbi, rabbi, of being known of someone of importance. But these very same people that loved the identity given by men also shut those very men out of heaven. They refused to enter themselves and they caused those who were entering in to suffer for that entering. They caused them to question. They caused them to be in this place of division. They went out of their way to teach other people to be like them. And Jesus says it this way, making children of hell worse than themselves. And the list that Jesus gave the Pharisees and the scribes, it just went on and on and on. And he had some really, really strong words for these supposed men of God. And what I really see in that whole chapter is that it comes down to this one kind of overwhelming observation that they claimed to speak for God and they weren't even of God. And the things they demanded done for God only gave birth to more and more self-effort and self-maintenance. They produced what they taught. They produced burdened men and women, strapped down by the weights of sin and self-righteousness. They excluded people from freedom and life because they needed them to fill their own need for followers, their own need for praise, their own need for identity. Now, I want to say right here that I believe that some were genuine, just like there are genuine people in the church today who do some of these very same things and don't realize it. I believe sometimes it's from a place of ignorance. And still there were others that truly loved the identity that the power and praise of men gave them. And maybe too, it didn't start that way, but when left unchecked, it grew into that beast of self-righteousness and self-gratification. And what really made it particularly heinous was the fact that they did it using the authority of God in a way that even, even he himself would not use it. And this is why Jesus called them out. He was not going to continue to allow men to tell others what his father looked like when God never looked like that at all. And friends, we can see that every action that Jesus did, every sermon that he spoke, Every time he healed or he delivered, he never did it for God. He never did it in the sense of obligation to God or a sense of duty. He never did it to make himself important to other people or indispensable. Before his first ministry assignment, he was baptized and God said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was pleasing to the father and he was the son of the father before he ever did a work for the father. 
And because he was secure in this identity, the identity spoken to him from the mouth of God, he could reach out to mankind, not needing anything from them except to show them the kingdom. He never entrusted himself to men because he knew what was in their heart. And he didn't need them to affirm him because he had all of the affirmation that he needed from God. He did the works he did because they were of God. He was of God. So the works he did were of God. They were the very things his father did. And he came to show us what an of God life would look like, even as a work. I think we saw it in the example of him stopping by a well in the middle of Samaria to speak to a woman about her colored past and to make her new. In living a life of God, God's work was inclusive. He healed a man that for 35 years laid waiting for the miraculous to happen to him. And he gave him the option of would he be made whole or not? Because living a life of God is a life that says that God's work was not forceful. Jesus fed 5,000 men, including women and children, and each of those people being fully satisfied with plenty of leftovers remaining because a life of God doing work for God, God's work was satisfying for all. Jesus healed the woman with the issue of blood, giving her a life again in fellowship because God's work is restoration. He healed the man born blind as a testimony to the truth of who God is because God's work is for his own glory, not for man's. Jesus released the adulterous woman from the penalty she deserved, offering her freedom and forgiveness because God's work was reconciliation. And so often we see that he did this on the Sabbath, not to rub it in the face of the Pharisees and be like, see, you don't need the Sabbath. See, I'm breaking my own law. No, he was not breaking his own commandment by working on the Sabbath. What Jesus was doing was breaking their commandment. He was breaking the rules that the Pharisees had put on it. He was breaking those rules that excluded people, doing what they wouldn't even do to one of their own animals to people. They were denying the humanity of their own people. And Jesus was bringing to light what the Sabbath really was, that it was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, that it was mercy and that it was rest. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath by healing and delivering on it, he was fulfilling it. He was embodying the Sabbath. He was giving what it was intended for, rest. Rest to the broken, rest to the cast aside, rest to the hurting, and rest to the wounded. He was giving mercy to the heavy laden and mercy to the worn out. You know, when Israel regarded the Sabbath, when they took that Sabbath day rest, they were being merciful to their own bodies. They were giving their own bodies rest. It was a good thing. It was a place to refeed and to restore and to bring reconciliation. You see, this was the work for God 
This is what work for God looks like because it came out of a life of God and it looked like inclusion and permission and satisfaction and freedom and restoration and reconciliation. And I shared in the first part of this moment, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, and it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not holding our trespasses against us. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verses 20 and 21 of this same chapter say, we are now ambassadors for Christ. As though God is beseeching you through us in Jesus's place to be reconciled to God. For he made him to be sin who did not know sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ, to do work for Christ from the life of Christ, it looks like what Christ did. It looks like reconciliation. When we are reconciling, we are offering to make right what is wrong. Reconciliation is a two-way street, though, because it takes two people to reconcile. I can't reconcile on my own. It takes two. And what's amazing is how God chose to reconcile with us. He did it through his own son, through himself. Not only did he reconcile, but he made the means of reconciliation through himself. Now, I have to admit that there is a mystery in the Trinity that I don't fully understand. And I don't really want to take this moment to discuss it in depth. All I know and that I'm willing to settle on for this point in my life is that according to scripture, God is father, God is son, and God is spirit. All God, all equally important. And in Christ, God was giving himself to the world so that we could have the choice to give ourselves to him. And we do this through being born again of his spirit. We're the ones who owed the debt, not God. We're the ones who have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We fall short of the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God. We are the ones that are born into sin and with a sinful nature. We are the ones that are living under a false identity that unfortunately was passed to all mankind through the sin of Adam and Eve. And there is nothing that we we can do about it for ourselves. There's nothing that comes from myself that's good enough. There's no gift of empathy that I have for others. There's no ability to listen well. There's no desire to help others. There's no good deeds or selfless acts that come from myself that can pay the debt that I owe to God. That debt somehow satisfies a holy love. I, I can't pay that. God knew this. And so God gave himself to rectify and to reconcile. He offers to come to the table and to lay all of his cards down. He withholds nothing from us. He says, here's my love. It looks like the blood of a perfect sacrifice and it's yours. If you'll take it, I'm so satisfied with my own redemptive work. 
And I'll be satisfied with you if you'll come to me through my way. You see, we are the ones that must see our own sinful self. We must see our need. But it doesn't always look at face value like the depravity that I think it has to look like. When I, when I think of the woman at the well, what she was engaging in was wrong. It was sin. I'm, I'm calling it what it was. She was married five times and now she was just shacking up with the next one. And she was probably so used to her lifestyle that for her, it was normal. It wasn't depraved. It wasn't gross or heinous. What caused her to recognize the, the place of her life and her own self and to recognize the change that was offering was not him pointing out how gross she was and the gross nature of her sin, but rather it was pointing out Honey, you're missing something here in your own spirit and in your own soul. It was the issue behind the sin. Sin was the behavior. It was a woman who didn't know who she was. She didn't know that she was destined to be a child of God if she would come to his table his way. She didn't know that she was living under a false identity. She didn't know that there was another way. And she reasoned with him out of what she knew of a life for God because she perceived that he was a prophet. She perceived that this man, there was something different about him. And so she was going on what she knew of what those who lived, quote unquote, for God in the past had shown her. She reasoned with him out of a life of the religious people who excluded her from her daily company. She was like, why are you talking to me? I'm a woman and you're a man. I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. Why are you even speaking to me? She reasoned with him out of the life of her ancestors who built the well that she was drawing from and gave her the little bit of godly heritage that she was supposedly living from. And she even reasoned with him out of a life of religious rules, where to worship and how. She was reasoning out of what she knew of a life for God. And Jesus kind of ignored all of that and basically told her, the day is now when those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth, because that's the kind of worship that I really want. And I think we could say it like this, that now is the day when it's not just going to be a life for God. You're not going to reason with me or worship me from a life for me, but rather from the life that comes of me, the life that comes from God. And this was the message that delivered that woman into freedom and out of the bondage of the life that she had lived. Not the necessity of ticking all of these rules and boxes of a life for God, but the necessity of actually having a life that was of God, one that was of his purpose and was born of him and of his nature. She was offered the opportunity to see her wrong. And what was her wrong? It was her sin of unbelief, but in the same moment offered 
the opportunity to be free from it if she would just believe the man holding it out to her. And this was reconciliation. It was an invitation to the table of forgiveness and the choice to eat at it. She was allowed. She was included. The meal was there. There was restoration. There was the offer of reconciliation, but she had the choice. It is the living of the life of Christ, one born out of the same spirit that will cause us to rise and invite others to that same table that is still spread. See, friends, I think of the life of Christ that it looks like reconciliation. It looks like my identity being reconciled to God so that I can see others the same way, being reconciled to God. Not by my right words, but by his spirit stirring faith in me to believe. It looks like me in my might, my right mind, which is his mind, going out and telling others what he's done so that they too can have the opportunity to believe that he is for them as well. I recently heard a sermon preached on the demoniac that was delivered by Jesus in the, the area of the Gadarenes. And it really inspired me because the speaker encouraged us to look at the loss of identity that this man was living under. He was living under an identity taken over by the demons in him. They caused him to live in the tombs naked. People would bind him in chains, but then he would break the chains and be driven into the wilderness by these very demons. I mean, who knows what this man did to himself? Who knows what this man did to terrorize people in his town? Who knows if he hurt others? Who knows where his family was or if they were looked down upon? What was the residual impact of this man not knowing his own identity? Because we don't live to ourselves. And what happens when we don't know who we are? It affects the people around us and it affects our relationships with ourselves and with other people. And when Jesus spoke to this man, the demon named himself and he called himself Legion. The man didn't have an identity apart from what possessed him. But one word was all that it took from the one who embodied the presence of God on earth, Jesus Christ. One word from the man who had all authority, he said, go. And the demons went into the pigs and the pigs jumped off the cliff. It wasn't, and I love that the speaker brought this point out, it wasn't the man that Jesus cast out. It was the demon in him. And the people who saw this went back and they told all of the town what happened. And then they came to that place and they saw the man and they saw him sitting with Jesus and he was fully clothed and he was in his right mind. The identity of humanity was restored to him of True humanity, true image of Christ was restored to him. He was reconciled by Christ. So now he could live of Christ as a brand new man. What an amazing testimony and a transformation. I mean, a deliverance, a total change of life for this guy. 
And yet the response of the townspeople is so often where you and I can find ourselves if we have not come to see our true identity in Jesus. The townspeople did not see the healed, restored, and reconciled man. What they saw was the loss of their income from the pigs jumping off the cliff. They didn't see a new town. They saw the loss of self-interest. And this is so often what the Pharisees did as well. They could never see people being restored to God by Jesus. They could never see the broken healed. They could never see the unnamed being called daughter. They could never see the rejected being gathered into families. They could never see the captive made free. They could only see their loss of authority and power and influence. They could not see their own need of the life of Christ because they were just too busy doing life, quote unquote, for Christ. Friends, I am more and more convinced (laughs) that the life of Christ looks nothing like me. It doesn't look like my effort and my self-interest. It doesn't look like me getting a pat on my back or getting the reputation of a good one from men. It doesn't get me. It doesn't look like me accomplishing things in God's name. If his name gets marred in the process through people being rejected and torn down and separated from him, that is no life for God. And it is certainly not a life of God. You see, friends, we have been given the gift of reconciliation so that we can share it with others. And you know what? It may cost us something. In the sermon I heard about the demoniac, the pastor asked, what if someone's healing cost you your livelihood? Would you be more focused on what you lost rather than what someone else gained? Or would you be willing to let it go? And Wow, that is a sobering question, and yet so very necessary. This truly is the gospel, friends. And we, too, get to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, just like he did. The scripture in Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he made himself of no reputation. Even though he was equal with God, he took on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. He became sin. He became sin so that we could become righteous. You and I will never become sin for someone else. And there's no need for us to. And we will never be able to pay for our sin with enough punishment or enough self-harm. And we don't need to because Jesus did that. We just receive and invite others to do the same. We live a life born of God. as And as we do, we will see others, and they will be able to be born of him too. And we'll be able to go and tell them. What a beautiful gift and a beautiful calling that we've been given. It's the life of Christ, the of Christ life, producing the for Christ life. And that is a life that produces reconciliation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much that you have entrusted to your church the ministry of reconciliation. What a privilege 
to speak for you, God. May we speak well. May we speak right. May we speak with your heart, Father. May we not be like those who do not know their own identity and speak things for our own benefit, speak things to get our own accolades, to make ourselves feel good, to to bolster some kind of a need, to fill some kind of an empty space, Father. But may we be people that are secure, that we have been born of the Spirit of God, and now we speak from the Spirit of God to see people people from the Spirit of God, to call them to be born of the Spirit of God, to come to that place of reconciliation that you've made for us through Jesus Christ. What an awesome God you are, and what an amazing plan of eternal salvation that you have entrusted to us, Father. May we be people that live and walk worthy of that call today. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, thank you so much for joining with me in this really poignant and sobering moment with Miranda. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I pray that you will remember how very much God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever would believe on him would not perish, but would have eternal life. That's the gift of God for you and me today. May we take it freely. Thank you so much for joining me for this moment with Miranda. Make sure you tune in again next time. God bless you.